Um, good to see you guys this morning. Hope you had a good week. Uh, we're continuing through this uh, saga on the life of David. Uh, we'll be talking about that in just a minute, but a couple announcements to keep you aware. This is the beginning of Lent, is that right? Is that right? Is that, does that mean I can't eat Doritos for 40 days? Is that what that... No, Pop-Tarts, I can't remember what I'm supposed to give up. <clears throat> so, but anyway, um, just to let you know, on Easter Sunday, we'll actually be having two services in the garden. We'll have an 11 o'clock service in the garden as well as a 9. Last year we had, it was very crowded, so hopefully we'll try to alleviate that by having a second Easter service on Sunday. Also, a treat for you guys in a couple of weeks. We're going to continue with the life of David. Next week, we're going to be talking about Absalom a little bit. Uh, and then the week after that, actually, Megan will be in here preaching uh, that Sunday. So I know you guys are looking forward to that. What? Teaching. Teach, oh, sorry, teaching. <laughs> Inside joke. So, but anyway, um, she'll, be, she'll be doing that in a couple weeks because I'll be in New York, but she'll be here. And so uh, make sure you guys come out for that. It's going to be great. Um, but this is a... This is a tough subject today. As a matter of fact, I was emailing the team earlier this week, and one of them replied back, what the heck are you going to do with this story? Because this story is about rape. It's about a brother raping his sister. It's about dysfunction to the level that you would not believe. And it's about how God loves Crappy families. Thank God for that, huh? I mean, because if we're honest, some of us do a better job of hiding the secrets, but all our families have a lot of crap. Even the ones where everybody, including the baby, might dress in Christian Dior. And so this story in 2 Samuel 13 is a tough one because basically what happens is Amnon, who is David's oldest son, and frankly, he is the legal heir to the throne. Now we know that God actually loves Solomon, but remember the overall story about the life of David at this point is Satan hates the kingdom of David because he knows that is the throne to which Christ will have claim. And at first he tried to destroy David. Once David became king, now he's trying to destroy the throne and the secession of the throne. And so in this situation, you can clearly see how the enemy plays a role in this. But here's what happens, basically. I'm not going to read the passage because it's so long. But basically, the scripture says Amnon has a very serious crush on his sister Tamar, who happened to be very beautiful. Matter of fact, the scripture says... He wanted her so much, he was sick to his stomach about it. Now, Jonadab is Amnon's cousin, one of the sons of David's brother, Shimea. And, you know, there's probably some dysfunction there. He's probably, you know, why was David chosen? Why wasn't my, this guy, Amnon, is a joke. He's got a crush on his sister. He's going to be king? That's ridiculous. I'm going to destroy his life. So he goes over to Amnon and says, Prince, why are you so downtrodden? Why are you so depressed? Why are you so discouraged? And he says, Jonadab, I'm afraid that if I don't have Tamar, I'm going to die. I love her so much. 
but I can't have her because she's a virgin and she's my sister. And Jonadab says, don't worry, i got a plan. Pretend like you're sick. Send word to the king. And ask the king to send your sister Tamar to take care of you. I'll make sure she gets in. I'll make sure David gets the message. And then you can speak to her. So the story goes that Amnon fakes an illness. Jonadab gets the word out to David that Amnon is sick. You're your oldest son. You know, you're the heir to the throne. He's sick. And he just really wants Tamar to come and just take care of him. So Tamar bakes some cakes and she goes in. And Amnon's on the bed. <coughs> I'm sick. And she brings the cakes and he grabs her and says, come lie with me, sister. She says, no, we can't do this type of thing. It's terrible. And the scripture makes it pretty clear what happens. He forces himself on her. And the scripture says something very interesting. He says, and once he was finished with the act, the scripture says he developed a hatred toward her that was greater than the love he had previously. So all of a sudden, in the space of a few minutes, he goes from wild, unbelievable, uncontrollable, undeniable obsession and lust fulfills that obsession and lust, and now hates the object of his desire. And the Scripture says that what he did is he said, get out of my sight. And she says, brother, don't do that, because that will be worse than what you just did to me. Where am I supposed to go? How am I supposed to hide my shame? And he commanded the servants to grab her and throw her out and bolt the door behind her. And the Scripture says she ran away with her face over her, her hands over her face, crying. She goes to Absalom, who's her brother, David's third oldest son. And Absalom says, what's going on with you? I know what happened. You've been with your brother Amnon, haven't you? Because Absalom knew that there was this dysfunctional lust that his brother had for his sister. And he says, don't worry. You'll forget about him. Come live in my house. And the scripture says from that day forward, Absalom never spoke a word to Amnon, either good or bad. The scripture also teaches us that David heard about this and was very angry, but did nothing. This was probably about 10 to 15 years after his sin with Bathsheba. And David chooses to live in secret shame over his son's rape of his daughter. Because Amnon was his oldest and, frankly, heir to the throne. And what is interesting about this, and just on a side note, this is an example also of God's grace and mercy. Because... God knows what's going to happen. And the scripture says that when Solomon was born, what did we say last week that we learned? The scripture said that God loved Solomon. And so, 
Satan probably doesn't know that Solomon is going to be the heir. And so Satan begins to drum up these attacks using the lust and the passions and all these things. He wants to destroy the line of David so that Christ cannot be our Savior. So he fails. But now let's look back at the story. The victim, obviously, Tamar. Can you, can you imagine the question she's asking herself? Why did this happen to me? What did I do wrong? What will others say? How can I ever show my face? I mean, this is a tragic thing. She did nothing to deserve this. But I know I watch enough Law and Order Special Victims Unit to know she was probably trying to blame herself. Let's look at the perpetrators of this. First of all, Jonadab. This guy, Amnon, what a joke he is. He doesn't deserve to be king. He's an idiot. I'm going to set him up. What do I care about Tamar or Amnon? This should be good. As a matter of fact, later on, Jonadab says, Look, I tried to tell Amnon this would happen if he didn't give up this lust. I tried to tell him. But he didn't listen. I mean, he's a scoundrel. The scripture says he was very sly. Very shrewd. The second perpetrator is Amnon. Do you think he really considered the total cost of his sin? Do you think he really considered, and we've talked about this the last couple of weeks, about obsession and love and how, how sometimes we fall in love with the wrong thing and what we really should fall in love with is what? Brokenness and humility. Do you really think he understood the price of fulfilling his obsession? Or did he just have his eyes on the prize? I have to have her. Without her, I have no purpose. Wait a minute. Now that I got what I wanted, I hate her. I know. I'll just pretend like it never happened. I'll just kick her out. There's another perpetrator. It's David. I can't believe my son would do this to his sister. I am so angry. Let's pretend it never happened. Then there's the cost. There's shame for Tamar. There's denial and darkness for Amnon. There's dysfunctional rage by Absalom, and we'll see that in the weeks to come. And there's a ridiculous lack of courage from Dad. This is a man after God's own heart. God's chosen king. Do you think there's anybody in Israel that starts saying, man, maybe we'd have been better off under Saul? Saul's family wasn't this much of a mess. He had a good relationship with Jonathan. I mean, do you guys see the ridiculousness of the comparison between the two? How can a man who loves God get away with this kind of garbage? How can a man who loves God have such a totally ridiculously dysfunctional family? I told you this was a kind of an intense story. So let's kind of break down, if we will, 
the anatomy of dysfunction. Okay? First, there's seduction. You need to convince your heart that the sin is okay to commit. So the seduction is not you seducing, it's you being seduced. It's okay. It's all right. Then there's the setup. You have to put effort and money and thought and planning into creating a dysfunctional environment. I mean, you don't just trip over the doorstep and become dysfunctional. You understand that, right? Your family doesn't become dysfunctional because you dropped a can of soup on the floor. Your family becomes dysfunctional because you make plans and decisions to fulfill your passions that you've been seduced into thinking are okay. I mean, look at the effort that Amnon and Jonadab put forth. Do you think David had to put forth any effort to keep it secret? And then there's the shame. Here's another part of the anatomy of dysfunction. There's the shame. You recognize that your obsession makes you look like an idiot and a fool. I mean, Jonadab had to think that Amnon was the stupidest man in all of Israel, did he not? Frankly, he was. And once Amnon committed this sin, he says he has hatred for Tamar, in reality... Tamar was the scapegoat for his anger, which clearly should have been pointed where? At himself. But the natural part of dysfunction is that the shame you have, you point towards someone else or something else, and you allow that anger to be pointed at the wrong person. You create a scapegoat, which we'll get to in just a minute. But before you get to the scapegoat, you have silence. You try to hide your sin, ignore its reality. I mean, Amnon cast out Tamar so he didn't have to look at her, pretending that it never happened. David was angry, but he didn't do anything about it. Absalom didn't want to talk to Amnon. He didn't want to talk to anybody about it at first. And then there's another part of the anatomy of dysfunction in our families, and that's the secrets. And this was my hashtag Sunday sermon previews, if some of you guys get those, on Saturday night. The hardest part about having families is dealing with our secrets. So you never come to the light, right? And you live in the darkness. And this darkness stumps your growth. And it prevents your healing, both for you and the victims. And then, instead of living in the light and dealing with who you are and what you are, who your family is and what your family is, instead of living in the light, you have silence, you have secrets, and then you develop a scapegoat where you shift the blame to someone else. It could be someone in the family. It could be your actual victim. It could be somebody outside the family. It could be somebody in your church. It could be a pastor. It could be a friend. It could be a boss. Whatever. Something happens to people who are in dysfunction, and that is this. They get ridiculous, unfounded, self-righteous, arrogant judgment in their lives. Do you understand that arrogant, judgmental attitudes are a direct result of dysfunction in your life? When you find yourself 
constantly in the habit of sitting in judgment of someone else, it's because you have been deceived, you're in silence about your secrets, you have shame, and you're projecting it on someone else. James made this very clear, did he not? We talked about this for almost two weeks back in our study on the book of James. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And he talked about the fact that who are you to be arrogant and judge someone else when you yourself are full of garbage? You know, just because we're Christians doesn't mean that we don't have deep, dark, disgusting dysfunction in our families. We all have family secrets. I mean, David was a man after God's own heart. He probably looked good on a lot of people's eyes. But he sure had it in his. So there's, if you have a pen, you can write this down. There's a book I want to recommend all of you read. It was recommended to me. I probably recommended it a hundred times in my life. I've recommended it to many of you. It's called People of the Lie by M. Scott Peck. It's one of the best books I've ever read on dysfunction. I would love for you to read it. It's easy reading. It's not that big. You can get it on Amazon. It's a bestseller, paperback. It's a great book. David, a man after God's own heart, was a person living a lie. Do you think it's possible with the type of relationship that David had, this open, vulnerable, bare-all relationship with God, do you think it's possible if he was dysfunctional that some of us might be? Okay, is it possible that all of us might be? You know, it's so easy for us to be disgusted by David and by Amnon and Absalom and Joab, who murdered people. But here's what's interesting. Our disgusting view of David and other people in our church that we know their secrets, somehow we've stumbled upon them, maybe they in a moment of weakness confessed them to us, or maybe at some point we caught them, and we know theirs, but they don't know ours. Did you know that our disgust and our judgment does not produce righteousness in them? James says that. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You're not arguing with me, you're arguing with the Scripture. Your arrogant judgment does not produce righteousness. It just shows dysfunction. Absalom, later on, that we'll learn, tried to enact righteousness through his anger. It didn't work, and it didn't end well. You know, some of us have in our family dysfunction that's based upon abuse. Verbal, sexual, physical. Some of us, our dysfunction is based in bitterness. Some of us, our dysfunction, by the way, that was Jonadab's problem, bitterness. Some of us, our dysfunction is based on jealousy. Sibling favorites, sibling rivalry. Some of us, our resentment and our dysfunction is based upon dissatisfaction with family members, our spouse or our kids. Some of us, our dysfunction is rooted in betrayal. Right? Some of us, our dysfunction is rooted in abandonment. 
And all of these things, when not dealt with properly, properly cause a life lived in darkness and deception. Trust me, all of you are mired neck deep in dysfunction this morning. Even if you don't know it yet, trust me, you have a crappy family. I have a couple members of my family in the audience, and it's time for a confession. It's time for me to move into the light. Every Friday night, we have family dinner. And I developed a deep-seated bitterness towards some of the members of my family who always show up late. This Friday night was pizza night. And I'm not talking Little Caesars. I'm talking Rico's. <laughs> I made sure the pizza was in the house at 6.30. It was 6.45. Nobody was here yet. I'm starving. I'm frustrated. So here's what I do. Laura's not looking. Ben, my son, is upstairs waiting for Chad and Stephanie to come in. And I go grab a paper plate. Did you notice there was a piece missing, by the way? I grabbed a piece of the deluxe pizza, which is my favorite and Stephanie's, and I sneak into my office and close the door. <sighs> Oh, I love this pizza so good. I deserve to eat it because they're late. It's 6.47. Dinner's at 6.30. And I finish it, and I hear them come in right when I eat the last bite. I could have waited another minute, but I didn't know. It could have been 7.30 before. I saw it. it could have been 8.15 before they got here. I don't know. I could be dead by the time they get here. I... So, uh, there's this plate full of pizza grease on my desk in my office. And I hear them all in the kitchen. Well, I can't bring this plate out. They're going to see it. So, I started to hatch a plan. How can I hide the fact that there's a piece missing? I know. I'll have to leave the plate here. I'll have to get another plate, grab a piece of pizza. They'll just consider, oh, everybody always gets two pieces. And I'll go sit down at a table. Nobody even noticed. I hid my secret. I fulfilled my obsession. But if I don't deal with it right today, I'm going to develop dysfunction in my family. I mean, there I was in my office eating this delicious pizza pizza because I couldn't wait what ended up being three more minutes. Who was I afraid of? My wife? Yes, of course. <laughs> Dysfunction. Why am I afraid of eating a piece of pizza before the family gets here? I don't know, I just am. Don't judge me. You see, dealing with family dysfunction, it can affect us in so many areas. It's an ironic fear of consequences because in reality, keeping those secrets, we have to live with the consequences anyway. 
But when we live in secret and we live in denial, we experience the, the natural consequences of sin. But because we're living in the darkness rather than light, we never receive the healing. So our fear of consequences drive us to secretly, secrecy, but we are bearing the consequences only without the benefit of healing. David said, make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have crushed may rejoice. There's no bone crushing because there's no humility. There's no brokenness. There's no confession. And then we find the right scapegoat. See, if we live in the light and brokenness and confession, we can understand that Jesus is the scapegoat, not another family member. It's the same Jesus that God brought from David's lineage. Jesus, born from one of the most dysfunctional families in history. And then we have to have compassion for victims. Not judgment of the perpetrators. Because you see, here's the, here's the trick. When we get into arrogant judgment of the perpetrators, we are revealing what? Our dysfunction. But if we have a life that is marked by brokenness and humility and compassion, our first turn when we look at dysfunction is the victim. How can I help? How can I bring about healing? How can I bring about restoration? What is your first reaction? When I was reading this story, my first reaction was, how can I preach against Absalom? How can I preach against Amnon? How can I preach against David? Then I talked to a pastor friend of mine, and he made me realize, you know, I should really preach more about Tamar. Because in the end, there is stunning grace and mercy for David from God. Even with stuff that was worse than Saul's family, there's this grace and mercy. So my question is, can that grace and mercy apply to you and your family? And if you're in the middle of dysfunction right now, right now you might be experiencing the pain of it, the discouragement of it, the burden of it. Trust me, if you're not now, you will be. And when you are, if you can understand brokenness and humility before God, you will have the tools to overcome it. Because here's what's great about mercy and grace. They are built at the factory to operate in extreme conditions. Mercy and grace is not built at the factory to have the right weather, to have the right soil, to have the right water. No, the seeds of mercy and grace are durable. They're sturdy. They're hardy. And mercy and grace can take root in any dysfunctional situation. They don't need a lot of water. All they need is some brokenness and life will sprout from those seeds of mercy and grace like you would not believe. It's stunning. And so with that, the last thing I want to share with you here today is the fact that I want you to understand God loves crappy families. He loves us. 
And it's not just our nuclear family that he loves when those are crappy, and trust me, they are, but church families that are just as crappy because they're made up of what? Crappy nuclear families. He loves those families too. And then there's the family of the church of God all around the world. It's crappy, full of sin. He loves that one too. And His grace and mercy is assembled at the factory to operate under extreme conditions of dysfunction. All it takes is a little bit of brokenness to be willing to live in the light. That's what's so great about this story, this tragic story of Tamar and Amnon and Jonadab and David and Absalom that we're going to be unpacking in the weeks to come. We have about six messages left, five messages left in this life of David. We're almost done with it. The the last few weeks are going to be kind of hard. But all through it, I want you to remember, God's grace and mercy is stunning. I, for one, am glad that he loves crappy families because I've got one. Do you? No, I don't have... Yes, you do. (laughs) Trust me, you do. 